Welcome to Win 2020 with Makashin and Ross. I'm Makashin. I'm Ross. Today we are joined by Assembly Majority Leader Jim Steinecke. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the first question we start with all our guests is, what will it take for Donald Trump to repeat uh, the win in Wisconsin and capture the 10 electoral votes? Well, if I'm running Trump's campaign in Wisconsin, I basically focus on the economy, the stock market, uh, how well everybody seems to be doing. I think in general, people in the state are feeling pretty good about their their financial, their economic position. Um, so that's those are the kind of things I focus on uh, as far as the, the pros for getting reelected. Uh, and then obviously I think you have to uh, look at your opponent and how far to the left the Democrat uh, Democrats are seeming to go in this whole process and focus on some of the crazy that's out there. Uh, I think the uh, the contrast between those two things is what I would look at. So primarily you're saying borrow the James Carville playbook, it's the economy, stupid. It, it, yeah, it's always the economy. Uh, everybody typically makes decisions based on their own pocketbook. I don't think that this election is going to be much different. But do you think that there's a difference? I, I, I absolutely agree that it's always about the economy. You know, I use my wallet every day. That's basically it. But does the stock market translate into real progress for people in rural Wisconsin, which is where, you know, everybody agrees that's where that's where, where Trump was picking up votes that he might not otherwise picked up. He picked those up there. Yeah. And I, I honestly, I don't see any decline in support in rural Wisconsin uh, I, I, from uh, for President Trump. I think if anything, recently we've seen kind of an uptick. Uh, I, I think rural Wisconsin is far from what's going to be his issue. I think if he's got any issues, it's going to be in some of the, the more suburban areas. Um, but if you look at the data coming out, the the country as a whole, the, the economy is doing better, but it's lifting all boats. I mean, the, uh, the rise in wages is really affecting uh, the lower end of the econ economic scale even more so than the upper end. Well, let me just, on the farmer's part, because this has been a bone of contention. You know, we had Agriculture Secretary Purdue here who basically said, you know, small farms may not be able to exist. Um, because of the trade war, you know, we lost 638 farms in Wisconsin in 2018. We lost 551 in 2019. Um, our dairy exports in just the first half of 2019 to China fell by 54%. I mean, those are actual, you know, the, the farmers are hurting. And right now, what they can point to and what the Democrats can point to are statements made by the Trump administration and the trade war to tell them why they're not doing well. How do you how do you think Trump can counter that? Well, first of all, I'd push back a little bit on the idea that um, that you insinuated that the the farm losses are because of the trade deals. The, the farm losses in Wisconsin have been going on that predate that issue. So it's been a, uh, an issue that we've been dealing with for years. It's a complicated issue, obviously. I mean, when you have pieces of machinery for farms that cost half a million dollars, uh, that's hard for family farms to afford. So I, I think it's a it's more complicated issue than um, just looking at trade deals. Um, but uh, passing the USMCA, I, I think when I talk to my farmers in my district, they're excited about that. Uh, it's one of the things that they were disappointed that it took so long to get that across the finish line. But I, I think those, that's one of those things that uh, Republicans are going to be able to point to, President Trump will. And not surprisingly, people like Ron Kine now are all of a sudden trumpeting the USMCA and, and the effects it will have on Wisconsin farmers. As a former employee, as a former employee of Ron, of Representative Kind, I would say that he's always been pro-trade, sometimes to his detriment. I just want to one, one, one. 
back on, um, on, on farmers for just one second. Um, are you hearing anything from your constituents or constituents as you travel around the state to help other Republicans in the state legislature? Are you hearing any of the any of the sort of criticisms that I've heard, which is that the bailout that Trump did for the farmers? You know, I think the thing I think it was, that you know, the top one percent got an average of one hundred and eighty thousand dollars, while the bottom 80 percent of farmers got less than five thousand bucks. You talked about the need for equipment. If you're if you hear all of this stuff going on and you're saying, wait, we have a trade war. Is that hurting my farming? And you get a check for five thousand dollars. Are you really is that really going to change? You know, won't you feel betrayed? Yeah. And honestly, I don't, I don't know that I, I'm not hearing those kind of specifics from people back home. I'm just not. I think, you know, people by and large are are focused um, more on general issues. The, the farmers themselves, I haven't heard that in particular, so I can't really speak to that. Um, but it's, I think the overall feeling now, especially that the UMCA, uh, USMCA is done, uh, there's a feeling of optimism among, amongst farmers in Wisconsin. Well, and in my experience, I deal with dairy farmers on a daily basis. They're re- they've been remarkably patient. So they've been a tough economic cycle for at least five years, so long before President Trump was elected. They've withstood that for to to some degree, uh, uh, not easily, uh, but they've been patient and largely supportive. So I, I think there's optimism in, in dairy country. Yeah, and it's actually it, it surprised me. They've been far more patient than I have, really. I mean, yeah, I, me too. I'm a free trade guy. Me too. And so these tariffs scared the heck out of me, and I, I really had some concerns about where this was going to take us. And farmers, for for whatever reason, uh, most of them that I have had contact with. Uh, seemed to be willing to trust the process. Um, and they were, like you said, much more patient than I might have been. So let me ask uh, a question. <clears throat> Back in 16, Wisconsin went for Ted Cruz in the primary. They did not go for Donald Trump. Scott Walker and his group were with Ted Cruz. Uh, Tommy Thompson was with Kasich. People were all over the map. You were considered a never-Trumper. I don't know if that's a label you accept or reject, but let's just say you were late to the Trump train. What What's your view of how the president has done in his first three years of office? I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, I, I think by and large, um, the policies that he's uh, put forward, the direction that he's taking the country, by and large, I agree with. But just like anybody else, um, any other politician, I'm going to have differences of opinion. I, I really push back against this idea that uh, we seem to have in our culture now where you're either 100% with us or you're 100% against us. Yeah. Um, I felt the same way about President Obama, frankly. I mean, he did he did some good things that I agreed with. He did a lot of things that I didn't agree with. Um, I think that's one of the things that's really damaging to our culture here in the country is that if you dis- somehow disagree with the president of the, uh, of the country that happens to be your party, all of a sudden you're some kind of a traitor to your principles. I think it's exactly the opposite. That if, if you're not willing to stand up against poli- uh, policy positions that your own party presents, then, then you're just a party official. You're not really an elected official. Yeah, so let me pick up on that. So on the tribalism issue, you got reelected in 16. You got reelected in 18, despite potentially being on this never Trump train. Uh, did you get pushback from party faithful within your own district saying, hey, you need to be more supportive? Yeah, I mean, I, I did get, you know, there were uh, people, elected officials, Republicans that um, expressed some concerns and said, you know, I, I should maybe be towing the, the party line a little bit more. Um, I've always looked at my position as one where 
at the end of the day, when I go home to my wife and my kids, I've got to be able to look my kids in the eye and say that I'm doing what I think is right, regardless of whether it's a, a party platform or not, um, whether it conflicts with that or not. And I, just to give our, our listeners a little perspective in terms of some of the things that you've said, if you don't mind, I'm not going to ask you to comment on all. I just want <laughs> to you know, a couple that. of them, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, back in 16, you said that Trump was, quote, a morally bankrupt con man. Um, you called him a lot liberal and a liar. I would take umbrage with the first part of that. That's for sure with Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Um, but you also said a couple things in real time in terms of uh, in terms of him when uh, when the indictments came out against Duncan Hunter and uh, Doug Collins, two, the first two people who endorsed Trump in the in his in his election um, from Congress. You said, "quote that it was insanity," and quote that quote, political considerations, end quote, should have influenced these these indictments. That, that when Trump said that it was it was because of that, you said that that, that was bull roar. And then the, the last thing I do want to ask you to comment on, and that was a, uh, a comment you made, a sitting president asking foreign powers to investigate, follow, following, sorry, I really missed, misread it, a sitting president asking foreign powers to investigate U.S. citizens and political rivals should not and cannot be normalized. We're now in the midst of impeachment as a result of that. Are you still waiting for a Republican to stand up like you did in, in the federal government? Because I have not seen it. Uh, I, I think others have expressed concern about uh, about what happened there and some of the details. Obviously, I said that early on before a lot of the details became more public. Um, I still do have some concerns over, um, you know, if, if not the... Um, the details of it, the optics of it, um, I, I think are, are problematic. I, I do feel like if this was John Q. Smith, uh, that this phone call might not have included some of these details. But I also don't know that it rises to the level of an impeachable offense. I think when you look at uh, impeaching a president, impeaching and removing a duly elected president, it has got to have substantial evidence of wrongdoing behind it. And I just don't know that that uh, has borne to be the case here. Mm-hmm. Let me just bookend that with with another comment that I don't think anybody could disagree with that you said, which is, I feel that we have reached a point in our country's history where party loyalty trumps loyalty to oaths we take as elected officials. This is not a one-party problem, faith faith in our leaders. Yeah. So it's funny because whenever, whenever I say something like that, uh, I always get um, people coming at me from, especially on the left, on when I say things like this and saying, this isn't a both sides issue. You know, this is what you're doing the whataboutism and this isn't a both sides issue. If people aren't willing to look at the, the cancers within their own party, if they're not willing to look at the scabs on their own faces, then I don't think we're ever going to solve this. Because if, if, if you're unwilling to admit that your own side has some issues that need to be dealt with, uh, then I think we're just we're facing an insurmountable battle. On that. One of the things that well, you've, I think, I'm sorry, you you said um, you you've expressed somewhat never Trump positions, and you and you uh, said and you decry you didn't decry both sidesism. So I'm sure you're going to get a contract on MSNBC very soon. So congratulations. <laughs> well, I'd be making a lot more money than I do in the state legislature. But no, it is uh, it is something that I just believe that um, if you're in an elected office, um, you have the responsibility to be honest to the people uh, that you represent. People are going to disagree with me both on the Republican side and on the Democratic side, but I feel like if, if I'm staying true to myself um, and not always 100% necessarily the party, 
that I'm doing the right thing by by the district. And I think that's what really concerns me about like the primary processes we have going on in the state where uh, it seems to be sometimes uh, a loyalty oath. Who is, uh, who is most loyal to the president is the person we should, um, we should put forward as the candidate. And I just, I, I think that's exactly wrong and not what the founding fathers really envisioned, where these are uh, separate but equal branches of government. What I want is somebody that's going to go in there and uphold their oath, follow their convictions and what they ran on, not necessarily you know, who happens to be president. Well, what I like about you, and I'm going to do two things. I'm going to pay you a compliment and provide our listeners some context. <laughs> okay. you, you are a strong conservative. There is no doubt about that. Your record proves that without without a doubt. What I like about you is when you challenge uh, leaders, whether they're in your party or in the other party, you do it without an agenda. So there are national people that are, you know, folks that are listening to this and they're on the Republican side know there's guys like John McCain or Mitt Romney who are constant squishes and you can't count on them. Jim Steinecke's not one of those guys. What I like about you is you you call a spade a spade on either side of the aisle and let the chips fall where they may. And I, I, I think it's a breath of fresh air in politics, quite honestly. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it's it's just it's something that when I got into elected office, I, I never envisioned myself even running for the state legislature. I mean, it, it was really about when I got into politics, it was about a solving a, an issue at the town level, uh, dealing with the, the fire department versus the town board. It was really as simple as that, trying to uh, figure out a way out of that dispute. And that's why I ran for office. And it's it really is about perspective. I think um, I always try to keep in mind uh being able to uh, tell my kids the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. And if I can be honest with them when I'm doing that, that's that's what I look for. So my last question for you, Jim, um, the Trump factor. Uh, arguably, Donald Trump helped you win the 92nd, Trig Pronzinski. That had been a, a highly Democratic seat for a couple decades, maybe three decades. Yeah. Uh, he arguably helped uh, Pat Teston win the 24th. I think those two uh, will pro- likely be reelected this time around. Is there any chance Trump could hurt you in suburban districts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is obviously some data that suggests that uh, some of the suburban areas are a little bit weaker than they, they might have been in the past. I think the the overall Trump effect has um, has really changed Wisconsin into... I think it, it leans R now, uh, even though you know we, we go back and forth between Republican and de- Democrat. I think when you look at a presidential election like this with President Trump, I, I still think it leans R. I think he's still more likely to win Wisconsin than he's not. Um, Agreed. I, I think the the economy and you know unless there is a major turn in economic conditions over the course of the next eight months, nine months, ten months, whatever it's going to be, um, I think he's got a pretty good shot at reelection. Question I would have in terms of, you know, because there's data that suggests that the reason that uh, Trump won Wisconsin is because uh, otherwise Democratic voters stayed home because of who the nominee was, right? Yeah. For good or ill. That won't be the case this time. Maybe. A lot of people, a lot, well, I'm just saying Maybe. this. A lot, of, a lot of people said that, you know, the mistake that was made last time is they figured this was just a referendum on Trump. And what it really was was a tr- referendum on 20 years of, 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 of uh, Secretary Clinton. And do we, you know, depending on how that goes, whoever it is, whether whoever the nominee is for the for the Democrats, they don't have that sort of history. I mean, obviously, some of them have been around Biden, but but that sort of like 
she has been a consi- she was a consistent person that the right right despised with the intensity of a thousand suns that will right. not exist whoever it is so do you you know and, and one race that you did lose last time was Robin Vining over in the 14th which there were other yep. circumstances to that mm-hmm. but that's a pl- that seems to be like the kind of place where if the if the dam bursts in terms of Trump's uh women's positions on Trump and so that's what you know the, the dam will just completely burst so I think one of the things that Democrats and I, I hate to give them advice but one of the things that they have to be real careful about is I, I do believe that there is a risk depending on who the nominee is that some Democrats will stay home because if if you look at the uh, the AOC is rad- already forecasting that. Yeah, if you look at the radical fringes of either party, really, but in this case on the Democratic side, you look at the AOCs and you look at the uh, some of the new, really hardcore progressive, some you know leaning socialist members of the party that will not you know will not accept any kind of moderate voice. I think that has a danger of infecting the Democratic Party, and if you have a Joe Biden or somebody like him as the nominee that's more centrist um, as the nominee, you, I think you run the risk of uh, irritating a lot of those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like, I, you know, we've talked a lot about the federal politics. I think there is one issue that sort of that the nexus between both federal and state is here. That's what Trump called the eighth wonder of the world, the Foxconn. <laughs> yeah. Foxconn, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's talk square. You know, obviously, the governor wants Foxconn to, to, to work because, you know, he's the governor now. It wasn't his deal, but he's, he's the governor now. Obviously, the state legislature is Republican-controlled. You want Foxconn to work. The problem is Foxconn doesn't seem to be working in any way, shape, or form to what they promised, not even mm-hmm. in the frag. How will that play? You know, Governor Evers isn't on the ballot. Democrats can go after you and Trump all over the state. Yeah, I don't think Foxconn is going to be that big of an issue in this upcoming election. In any presidential elections, these these issues tend to be national in nature. Uh, Foxconn itself, I, I think while it's progressing uh, maybe a little bit more slowly than a lot of us would have liked or would have expected, it's still progressing. I'm grateful that uh, Tony Evers has kind of done a 180 on Foxconn and really is now supporting it. I wish he would talk to his lieutenant governor and get him to do the same thing because I think some of his statements and mocking uh, the company is are problematic. And I think that has a danger of leaking out into other aspects of uh, the business community throughout the state. If you if you have a lieutenant governor that isn't supportive of business and openly mocking businesses, I think that's an issue. I don't think that the I would say we will all do. I don't think that the reason that they have backtracked on what they promised they were going to deliver in terms of product is because of Mandela's Twitter. But no, yeah. and I, I yeah I, I agree with that hundred percent. I'm not making I'm not making that uh, characterization. I guess my my point is that. You know, we need to pull together as a team, whether you like the project or not, as the governor has. Uh, now it, it's all of ours to try to make as successful as we possibly can, because that's going to be the best thing for the people of the state and politics aside. What I worry about is some of those statements still um, have politics imbued in them. And I just don't think that that's the position of a lieutenant governor when you're talking about a, posi- a project like this. Do you so. think it'd be fair to go back and renegotiate contracts? Um, I honestly, to me, you you look at the contracts. The contracts were were designed to reward job creation, a specific type of job that had a specific income level. It was meant to reward capital investment uh, for every dollar that was invested. 
Um, so a, I think as those a former commerce secretary, I can tell you that's how all the contracts work. Yeah, and always have. And so to me, what what they make isn't quite as important as hitting those benchmarks. As long as they're hitting those bench, benchmarks, they're creating the jobs, they're making the investments. Uh, I don't think it's as important as exactly what they make. My last one, Jim, uh, is is a strategic question. You guys have some targets in the assembly, particularly in northwestern Wisconsin, seventy uh, second, seventy third, seventy fourth seat. Uh, maybe some others across the state. Um, does a particular Democrat at the top of the ticket help or hurt you? In other words, if if a Joe Biden, for example, gets the nomination, does that hurt your efforts to win some of those more conservative Democratic areas uh, versus uh, a Warren or a Sanders? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, I, I think the, the more extreme the nominee is on the Democratic side, the more it's going to help us. I mean, I, I think we're going to be on offense in, in a lot of seats anyway. I don't know that there's going to be a lot of seats that we're playing defense on. I, I think... Uh, you know, the way people are kind of self-segregating, Republicans are moving out into rural areas, liberals tend to be moving into more urban areas. You know, the demographics in this state just work to our favor. Um, so I, I, I expect that we're going to be on offense no matter who the nominee is. But obviously, if it's somebody more extreme like uh, Elizabeth Warren, I think that uh, makes our chances even better. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It's nice to meet you finally. Yeah, We've talked on absolutely. Twitter before. Yeah, but it's a nice couple to actually times. Talk yeah. in person. You seem much nicer in person, um, Scott. <laughs> you know, that's what everybody Tommy says. said the same thing. Um, yeah. But I uh, want to thank you for, for coming in, uh, Majority Leader Seinecke. And I would like to, you know, again, thank all our listeners who continue to tune in. Please visit us at win2020wi.com. We're at Twitter at win2020wi.com or win, at win2020wi. Uh, okay, boomer. Um, and so I, uh, I I wish you all well. And uh, please let us know if you have ideas for guests. Who have we not gotten yet that you want? Who would you like to see us interview? And until next time, uh, for Win 2020 with Makashin and Ross, I'm Ross. Yeah, I'm Makashin. Take care. <laughs>